Amen. Good to see everybody tonight. Um, if you want to get your Bibles out, we're going to be looking at Matthew 12 and Jonah chapter 1. Um, Matthew 12 and Jonah chapter 1. I found out in my life that there are two kinds of people you can learn from. Those who know what they're doing and those who don't know what they're doing. Heard it said this way, you can learn from, from a mentor or you can learn from your mistakes. It's your choice. One's a lot more painful. Um, but something that I've noticed here and that uh, in this study is just God just showed me a lot of neat things about, about Jonah. Um, but there's a certain kind of person that we probably all know that we can learn from. Uh, because they seem to make the wrong decision every time, right? And that's kind of how Jonah is in in this regard. The Hebrews 11, the chapter that's called the the Hall of Faith, and there's a lot of people mentioned in that chapter. Even Samson, who you know had a good beginning and a not a very good middle, but maybe a good end in some regards. He's in there. But you won't find Jonah in the Hall of Faith chapter in Hebrews 11. Jonah's not mentioned in there. And I think if we're not careful that we sometimes look at these characters like Jonah and, and even Israel, when we see them make these mistakes in the scriptures, right? especially the children of Israel when they're delivered from Egyptian bondage and they've seen these miraculous ten plagues and they're being led by a pillar of a cloud, by a pillar of fire by night, a cloud by day. It's all this supernatural stuff. Bread's falling from heaven, right? And they're having all this supernatural experiences and then we see them want to go back into Egypt or we see them begin to make mistakes and a part of us screams out, What are you doing? Why would you go back after you've seen all this stuff and seen God do this miraculous things that he's doing? But the Bible's not written for us to nitpick people groups or individuals. The Bible's written partially to show us a little bit about the something of who we are. Because if I was to have a DVD of your life and say, hit it, Clay, <laughs> and then we all get our popcorn out and begin to watch, I think we would all say, well, kind of looks a lot like Jonah. It, it kind of looks a lot like the children of Israel. So as we embrace Jonah today, don't look at it as, oh, that would be real good for my neighbor. Or that would be real good for that guy over there. But in Jonah, I want you to see something of yourself. But also, something strange. One of the Old Testament characters that Jesus references... It's Jonah. That he uses Jonah as an example 
for the signs of his own life and his work and ministry. It's like God is saying, here's the worst example ever, and that's the sign and the example I'm going to use to show who I am in the world. Crazy. Jesus references Jonah directly. Has Jesus ever referenced me? Are you? So maybe as we look into Jonah, we see something of ourselves, but we see something of Christ and the work that he has done in our life. Now, now check this out. Matthew chapter 12, verse 39 through 41. We're just going to kind of fly through these. And then we'll go right to Jonah chapter 1. Matthew chapter 12, verse 39 through 41. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So there's something of a parallel that Jesus wants us to see in the life of Jonah. So while we're studying Jonah, we're really going to see Jesus undo our Jonah, our Jonah-ness if you will. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. So Jonah here is getting the word of the Lord. He, Jonah is a prophet. He's the messenger of God. Jonah here is the man of God, and the Lord speaks directly to him and gives him a message. Jonah lived around Gath Heifer around 8th century BC. That's about 2,800 years ago. And this message from God came directly to him. And this is what God said, verse 2 Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So here is Jonah, and he gets this message that he's to go to this great city and go preach. To this city, so that they might have a chance to repent of their deeds. Now, Nineveh is the capital of this empire called Assyria. Assyria emerged as a territorial state in the 14th century BC. Its territory covered approximately the northern part of modern Iraq. The first capital of Assyria was Assur, and it was located about 150 miles north of modern Baghdad on the west bank of the Tigris River. The city was named for its national god, Assur from which the name Assyria is also derived. From the outset, Assyria projected itself as a strong military power bent on conquest. Countries and peoples that opposed Assyrian rule were punished by the destruction of their cities and the devastation of their fields and orchards. By the 9th century uh, BC, Assyria had conquered all that that you see in green and light green. They had conquered completely, and that was under their rule. The Assyrians had a unique way of doing warfare. When the Assyrians came into town, they destroyed every living thing 
and even sowed salt into the earth where nothing else could rise up from the grounds. No crops could grow or anything of that nature. They were especially brutal. And when they begin to expand their empire, it was going to take finances to do that. Well, if you're going to expand the empire, you're going to need more finances. If you're going to need more finances, you're going to have to get more finances from more people. Thus, the conquest of power that continued to go. And as they begin to create uh, more land and more wealth, they begin to bump up against these Syro-Palestinian states of Israel and Judah. So suddenly what started out as uh, this little small empire began to grow and begin to press itself upon, its, upon Israel and Judah. Now this empire was especially evil. As I said before, they would kill every living person when they conquered a city. They were the first to start crucifying people. They would stick people on a stake and just leave them there stuck until they died. They would, uh, were the first to where we get the term headhunters. They would uh, lop off human heads, eight high, and stick them and hang them all throughout the city and stick them in the grounds and, and just would just do horrible, evil things. Aren't you glad you came to Bible study today, right? It's family-friendly service here. They would cut off the hands and feet of the people that were opposing them, and they would let them bleed out, and then they would feed their body to pigs. This was a, a very brutal and evil Nation. This was a, a nation that, that was uh, bent on war and war in the worst kind of way. A king's, this was a king's account found in history where he says this, In strife and conflict I besieged and conquered a city. I felled 3,000 of their fighting men with the sword. I captured many troops alive. I cut off some of their arms and hands and cut off their noses and ears and extremities. I gouged out their eyes of many troops. I made one pile of the living and one pile of heads. I hung heads on trees around the cities. I skinned people and draped their skins on the city walls outside the gates. I erected... Uh, up on stakes, uh, a pile of bodies. I flayed many right through the land and draped their skins all over the city. It is said that when Assyria finally fell in 612 B.C. by the Babylonians, that the whole world stood up and applauded because of the evil of this generation. The evil of the conquering nature of the Assyrians. So Jonah's not unfounded by feeling the way he feels. The, the people that are doing this, Jonah, go share them the message and have them repent. And Jonah doesn't want them to repent. Now, if God told me to give a word to a people of that nature, I would be afraid of the people, right? Oddly enough, Jonah's not afraid of the people. He's afraid they'll respond and repent and God will have mercy on them and not judge them. That Jonah's fear is different. Jonah's wanting God to punish them. And what Jonah doesn't know, or maybe he does, is that these same people are soon going to conquer his people. And if they don't change how they do war, then there'll be no Israel left. And if there's no Israel left, then there's no Jesus. 
But Jonah's prejudices toward the Assyrians has him so short-sighted that he's not trusting God in his long-term plan in the history of salvation. And this is what happens to us, is, is our anger and hatred towards those who have done stuff against us will blind us, keep us short-sighted, and keep us from extending mercy to those in whom God has asked us to extend mercy to. Verse 3, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. This story gets even odder. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And so he paid the fare and went down to it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So we got a little map here that I put together. Jonah goes to Joppa. The red arrow to the right is Nineveh where he's supposed to go, about 500-mile journey. Do you notice where Tarshish is? It's modern-day Spain. <laughs> what, what Jonah is saying is, is this is the known world at the time. There is no Columbus bumping into the West Indies. They don't know if they're going to fall off the face of the earth. So what Jonah's saying is, God's the God of Israel, and this is the known world. I'm going through the Straits of Gibraltar there by North Africa and where Spain, there's a little strait there. I'm going through the Straits of Gibraltar, and I'm going off the face of the earth so God can never find me again. See, this was the known world at this time, and Jonah's trying to find a place to hide from God. God says, go. Jonah says, no. So why did he run? The Bible says he's fleeing the presence of the Lord. He's trying to flee God's face. I think Jonah understood that he couldn't flee God's reach or his rule, his reign. He understands that if they don't repent, God's going to judge them. So he understands God's sovereignty. It's not that. It's that he doesn't want to have a face-to-face -face with God. It's that he's fleeing the face of God. The, the cut of the jaw is the face, and the, the focal point of a body is the face, is the eyes, and the facial expressions which tell us the most about a person. It's, it's, it's something that he didn't want to make eye contact with God and have conversation with him. He's leaving God's face. He figured this is the God of Israel, so if I leave, he won't find me, and surely he'll choose somebody else. And oddly enough, God is committed to this man, Jonah. If I was God, thank God I'm not, but if I was... I would have said, Jonah, you're going to go to Tarshish? Okay, yeah, you have your way. I got this other guy over here who's really willing and probably more talented. But there's something about God that he's tied to this man, Jonah. That he wants to get this message out of Jonah. And Jonah is going away and kind of being the one that says, well, you know, hey, look, I'm just trying to take care of myself. They deserve to die anyway. Maybe he's forgotten about the Abrahamic promise, which is 
through you, Abraham, I'm going to bless all nations. And he's lost that kind of vision of God's salvation and, and his salvation history. Jonah's looking to fall off the face of the earth. How many times does that happen? People come to church and then gone. Well, won't answer. Give you lame excuses. Stop coming altogether. It's like we act like Jonah. Like God is confined to a building. And if I don't walk into the building, I won't have to face God. <laughs> it's like we think God is confined to a city like Jonah. He's the God of Israel. So I'll go to Tarshish. <laughs> Surely there's nothing good in Tarshish. <laughs> Sometimes we think God is only confined to a certain preacher. But God's everywhere. God's not confined to a building, a city, or a preacher. So we think sometimes if we quit going to church, we won't have to feel bad about our disobedience, or, or we can hide and, and kind of be in the shadows, and we can do our own thing. We can hide from that friend or that parent that talks to us about God and everything's going to be okay. We can maybe even be in the building, but our heart is so disconnected and so uninterested uh, that we might as well not even be there anyway. We're fleeing the face or the relationship or the engagement with God. Maybe we think if we move to a different city, the God of hot springs won't find us. <laughs> Maybe Las Vegas is right. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. But I don't need any help, Robert. Thank you. <laughs> but what happens in Vegas is written down in the annuals of heaven. And you'll give an account for those things. And even if you're a Christian, you'll sit at the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for those things. So there is no hiding from God. You are not your own creation. You didn't create yourself. Thus, you are accountable to a creator. You can't escape or run from God. And surely Jonah knew this because just 250 years earlier was King David and he wrote this in Psalm 139. And surely the prophet of God studied the Psalms. Psalm 139 verse 7 through 10. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell or Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and I dwell in the utmost parts of of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. So Jonah does this thing. It's so crazy as Jonah chooses to run from God by going on the sea. Israel has always been about a promised seed in a promised land. Now Jonah, which the Jews are not seafaring people, is on a boat in which he's got no business being on, choosing rather to be on 
the sea. It's like the sea is representing something of a chaos. That's why when Jesus walked, he chose to walk on water. He's saying that the mystery and the the chaos and the stuff that don't make sense, I'm walking on top of that. They say that in the ocean, there's two-thirds of the ocean that has never been even looked at or studied or examined. And they're assuming that maybe 10 million creatures are in the ocean that we do not know about and that we have not seen. When the scriptures talk about the sea, it talks about Leviathan and these, these sea beasts and these creatures that are within there. And so Jonah is saying, I, I could listen to you, God. I could follow what you're saying, but I would prefer to throw myself into the chaos and flee your face. Revelation 21.1 even says that when God makes all things new, the sea is no more. Now, Tony, what do you make of that, buddy? He's not receiving that, is he? (laughs) But I think what God's really saying there is that the seas that have divided the nations, the tumultuous waves that have crashed on, the creatures that have eaten men, the chaos and mystery that's below us of 70% of our planet will come under the subjection and the rule of Christ. So here is Jonah, instead of being in the presence of God, throwing himself into chaos. But look what God does. He takes the chaos... It makes it more chaotic. Verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. When the mariners were afraid, each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down, and was fast asleep. Sound familiar? Sounds familiar. Verse 6, So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give you, give a thought to us, and we may not perish. So this must have been a really bad storm, because these are experienced sailors leaving the ports of Joppa, going to Tarshish. That's a long trip across the Mediterranean Sea. So if they're saying, whoa, this is really bad, and they're chunking stuff off the ship, which is their livelihood when they hope to get to Tarshish, this has got to be a a storm that's almost supernatural. A storm that the Lord would hurl and bring upon Verse 7, and they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they rolled dice with people's names on it. Hit Jonah. (laughs) Verse 8, and they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? 
And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Verse 11, when they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? The sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Something to note, when we don't obey God, the people around us are affected too. Nevertheless, verse 13, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not uh, on us innocent blood, for for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Have you noticed here in our story so far, the only person who is not praying is the man that should be praying. Everybody had their chance to call upon their God there, and they chunked stuff off. Now they're even calling out on the big L Lord. Not little G God, big L Lord. So now they've even converted, even though no deliverance has happened, they just start crying out. So, So the one that should be praying is asleep in the boat. The ones that know nothing about God begin to cry out to God, and they're the ones seeming to be Righteous. It almost looks like Israel and the Gentiles here. But maybe Jonah is a picture of Israel and individually maybe us at some time. So he won't go to the city, city so the Ninevites have a chance. But the sailors that don't even know God row even more harder to try to save Jonah. He even says, throw me overboard and this thing will stop. And it says they rode all the more hard. That they cared more about this one man than Jonah did about 600,000 in Nineveh. It's like Jonah, who's the cause of all their loss and trouble. And these men who don't even know God are talking to him and asking him for help. And the prophet's great advice is, kill me. So this is the embodiment, in a sense, of Israel. Jonah has a call on his life, and all he can do is keep running. Verse 15, so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Now look what happens. Verse 16, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The pagans are worshiping God, and the prophet is floating around in the Mediterranean Sea. The men give an offering and a vow to God that they'll serve Him. The one who should be serving God is... Doing the uh, dog paddle. So Jonah, the man of God, is the one in the story who's not following God. 
And as we go through this book, you guys are going to find that he's the only consistent example that never really follows God wholeheartedly. The pagan sailors do. I'm going to first, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag, okay? The Ninevites do. Nature does. But Jonah consistently is the example of how not to be. He is the prophet. But oddly, this is where it gets really odd, God will not change his mind about using Jonah. And I want to tell you, there's nothing you can do to change God's mind about the call that he's got on your life, that it's without repentance. And no matter how much you shuck and jive and and jump on a ship and try to flee to Tarshish, God has got his destiny and his purpose tied to you and your destiny and your purpose. And you'll only find happiness when you connect those two and begin listening to God and begin to hear God's heart and begin to look at him in the face again and have face-to-face with God. Not just understanding his rule and his sovereignty, but a face-to-face relationship with God because when you get face to face with somebody that's vulnerable because when I look you in the eyes you're going to be able to see if I'm fudging you'll see my eye twitch you'll see me look down to the right or to the left see face to face is vulnerable face to face is relational Face-to-face is truth and being revealed for who we are. So God is somehow tied to Jonah. And no matter how sorry or hard-hearted, the purposes, God's purposes for this man must come out. And this is God and the Jews. No matter how hard-hearted and stubborn, how much they reject Jesus, God's purposes must still come out of his people because his destiny is uniquely tied to them. That he is uniquely tied to us. Maybe someone in here tonight has a call from God on your life. And you're not answering it. And what I've found is that you can't run from God. And you'll never be happy until you submit to God. Because your happiness and contentment and His purpose and glory are tied together. They are inseparable. It's kind of like you're tethered to God. Almost like an anchor. That feels like it's holding you back from something. Yet it's keeping you from going into something chaotic that would destroy you. See, it's the, the price that you have to pay for sin will never be worth the joy it'll give you. Now, I know because I remember having a real experience with God my sophomore year in high school. And for six years, I ran from that call. It's like I was in the presence and the face of God. And it was like I willfully turned my gaze 
and launched myself into chaos. <laughs> I dropped out of college, moved to Dallas, got a job at the airport because I could fly anywhere in the world I wanted for free. And so I did. I knew I couldn't escape the rule of God, but I could at least get away from his face where we wouldn't have to dialogue. Where, God, you stay in your corner of the universe, I'll stay in mine, and choose somebody else to work this thing out. I'm tired. I don't want the responsibility. But how many of you know God has a way of getting you where you need to be? He has a way of getting you where you ought to be. And if you don't cooperate, you'll wish you did. Because you can go thousands of miles in fish intestines or go 500 miles to where he's wanting you to actually go. And the story of humanity is, we'll take the fish intestines. We'll take the belly of fish. But there's even a deeper narrative here that I don't want us to miss because of Jonah's pitifulness. <laughs> because this isn't just a story about a no-good prophet. We start to see Jesus. Now check this out. Both Jesus and Jonah were in a boat. Both boats overtaken by a storm. The descriptions of the storm are almost identical. Both Jesus and Jonah were asleep. In both stories, the sailor woke up the one sleeping and said, we're going to die. And in both cases, there was a miraculous divine intervention and the sea was calmed. Now, in Jonah's case, Jonah was the cause of the storm, right? Jesus was purely the remedy for the storm. Jesus, asleep on a, sh on a ship, asleep cradling his progeny and him knowing that the judgment, the storm would soon pass. Further, in both stories, sailors then become even more terrified when they were before the storm was calmed. Especially if you notice that in the Gospels is they're afraid when the storm's going, but then when Jesus actually does what they want him to do, it says they get more afraid. <laughs> well, I didn't expect that to happen. <laughs> but there's just one difference here. In the midst of the storm, Jonah said to sailors, in effect, there's only one thing to do. If I perish, you survive. If I die, you'll live. And they threw him into the sea. But look what happens in Mark's story. In Mark's story, the story is actually different when you stand back and look at it. Especially in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says one greater than Jonah is here. He's saying, in a sense, I am the true Jonah. What he meant was is that someday I'm going to calm all storms and still always. I'm going to destroy destruction and break brokenness. I'm going to kill death. Now, how can he do that? He can only do that because when he was on the cross, he was thrown willingly, like Jonah, into the ultimate storm. 
under the ultimate waves, the waves of sin and death. It's like Jesus said to those on the boat, throw me into the chaos that is humanity and the insanity of it. And like Revelation 21, 1 that says the sea will be no more, that when Jesus was thrown into the abyss of our sin and our punishment is that he steals all waves and he steals all separations and he makes it as if the sea is no more because there'll be no separation between the nations. There'll be no separation between us and God and all the mystery is stilled by the one who created it. There will only be one sea left. The sea of forgetfulness. (laughs) He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Micah 7, 19. Jesus was thrown into the only storm that could actually sink us. The eternal justice of what we owe for our wrongdoing. That storm wasn't calmed until it swept Jesus away. If the sight of Jesus going into that eternal storm for you and willingly saying like Jonah, throw me in. And I can steal this thing and, and calm this thing. If you can picture that in your mind, that, that there's no, nothing God's not willing to do to get to you and your storm and your separation and your chaos and your mess, then you'll never be able to say, God, you don't care. You might say, God, I don't understand. <laughs> God, this don't make sense. But you'll never be able to say, God, you don't care. What a question that God would answer when he could have answered anyone. He could have gave us the mysteries of the universe. He could have gave us a book that answered every mystery or everything that could ever be answered. And instead he answers this question, God, do you care? But the infinite wisdom of God would rather answer that question than he had the Pythagorean theorem. (laughs) Google it. (laughs) If you let that penetrate the very center of your being, you'll know he loves you. You know he cares. And so right now you feel like you're floating around in the Mediterranean Sea and you're trying to get to Tarshish. Maybe not physically, but mentally, and your heart's already at Tarshish. And you're just floating in the sea and you're like, God, what is this all about? Why this? And God answers one question. I care. I care. Why doesn't God answer why? Because there's only one entity that pleased God. Faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes in must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. If God revealed to you all the answers, you wouldn't have to have faith. Thus, you could never please God. So God would rather not you be informed, but be transformed. He'd rather you be floating in the Mediterranean Sea saying, God, you care. (laughs) 
And somehow you're going to work all this mess out. So likewise, in the center of our no good running from God moments, we've all got them. That's where we find Jesus. His suffering for our running. What we were running from, Jesus runs to. What we were running away from, Jesus enters into. We were running from God thinking we would find something better and we found nothing better. Jesus leaves God and then runs into the chaos that we're trying to run to so that he can blow that chaos up from the inside and point us back to God. It's miraculous that his suffering is for our running. That Jesus is running to obedience to overcome our running from it. And that his is to a willing obedience to reconcile our willing disobedience. So Jesus let men and empires and religious systems throw him into the sea. But instead of getting rid of God, it merely got rid of the storm. (laughs) And God rose from the dead to never die again. So their attempt to kill him and get rid of him makes it to where we can never get rid of God again. And so in Jonah and all his mess and mistakes, Jesus enters into that Jonah disobedience, makes it obedience, and wins us to himself. And so I want to encourage you that you don't have to run from God, that you don't have to get on the ship and flee to Tarshish, (laughs) that you don't have to quit hiding and playing these games with God and living a double life. That you can get vulnerable with God and get face to face with Him because He wants to talk to you. And He's looking to dialogue with you. And He loves you. And He cares for you. Let's pray.